Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go? My goodness. Today's episode is with Dr. Andrew Huff. He worked at EcoHealth Alliance during the time that Peter Daszak and EcoHealth were funding the research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This is, I'm not even like, I know I've said I've had big shows and blah, 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 and I've, I've upsold stuff. This is, in my opinion, the greatest podcast I have ever listened to, and I got to host it. I just wrapped with him. I am floored. I am floored by the openness, the honesty with which he discussed all of this. And this is keeping in mind that he is, he has top secret clearance that he is working around so that he's not saying anything that's top secret. And yet he's still telling so much truth. It's unbelievable. So anyways, uh, I really hope you guys enjoy this show. I really hope you guys hit like subscribe and share this show. Uh, this needs to get out to the world desperately, desperately, desperately. It is mind blowing. And this is, as you guys know, because you've been listening to me for years, that we've been hot on the trail of this story for years. And so much of it gets confirmed. Uh, there's so much new information, so many additional dots that could get connected. Uh, I'm absolutely blown away. I'm blown the fuck away right now. <laughs> this episode is awesome. Uh, so enjoy. I did want to say, though, I am not going to have any sponsors on this episode because I'm doing so many episodes recently that I don't have enough sponsors. Like they've only bought so many ad buys per month and I need more. So if, I mean, these, these episodes, I'm reaching tens of thousands of people. And at this point I'm only charging 250 per ad read, which is very, very reasonable. If you want to reach tens of thousands of people that are, you know, in the Liberty sphere that are free thinking type people, most of them are, you know, prime demos that buy a lot of, a lot of product. Uh, I would highly encourage you to reach out to me. You can just email me over at libertylockdownpodcast at gmail.com and submit. I, I do a minimum of four ad buys, so that means a thousand bucks, not a crazy amount of money. Um, but if you're interested in doing so, libertylockdownpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I love the sponsors that I do have, but they just they didn't budget for as many incredible episodes as I've been doing lately, which is a good problem to have. I'm not complaining. Uh, and then as always, if you want to support my work, go to libertylockdown.locals.com. That is the best way to become a supporting member of the show and to help uh, grow the show. And if you enjoy these interviews as much as I do, and my God, do I enjoy them, that's the way to do it. libertylockdown.locals.com. But make sure you hit the like button right now. And then throughout, throughout, as you're watching the interview, just comment again and again and again. Because I want to, I want to get the algos juice so that the uh, like once you hit like a threshold of four or five thousand views, then it actually gets bumped up into like all right, you you need to watch this territory, and then it can skyrocket into the ten, twenty, fifty thousand, hundred thousand view type territory. So that's that's how it works. For those that don't know how it works, um, man, man, what a unbelievable conversation! This is gonna blow your dicks off. Uh, and last but not least, go to topoffs.com. If you want to get a Liberty Lockdown shirt, become a walking billboard. Tell your family, tell your wife, tell your kids. Don't hide them. Get them Liberty Lockdown merch over at toplobster.com for Christmas because it's just around the bend. And uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays and Happy New Year and blah, blah, blah. We're doing crazy numbers. Couldn't be doing it without you guys. Really appreciate you. Enjoy the show.
just wanted to say thank you again for tuning in and uh, please leave five-star reviews over on Apple Podcasts. Share this episode. Please, please share it. It needs to get out to people. They need to know the truth of what's transpired or as much truth as we can deliver them, which we got a lot of truth today. Did we not? Did I lie? I did not lie. That was an incredible conversation. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, tomorrow I will be having on Ron Coleman. He's an attorney that's representing uh, Mr. O'Hanley in California where First Amendment violations have occurred. It's going to be a fascinating one. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Love you guys. See you soon. Welcome everybody to another not live stream edition because this is not going to be on YouTube because it can't be because we're going to tell you the truth. God damn it. <laughs> we're going to tell you the truth and you can't do that on YouTube. These sons of bitches, they don't ever let us tell the truth. So uh, today, as you guys know, I have been covering the uh, the case in Wuhan for quite some time now, and I've been trying to figure out and connect the dots, and you end up in conspiracy theorist land, and you kind of just get lost. You're like, what the hell is the truth about all this? Well, I have a man who may be able to give us that truth, and I am so thrilled to have him, is Dr. Andrew Huff. He actually worked under Peter, Peter Daszak over at EcoHealth Alliance, as we all are well, from, well aware of the connection there with Wuhan. Uh, NIH, uh, Fauci, the whole, the whole lineage. We're gonna hopefully connect some more dots today. Without further ado, Dr. Andrew Huff, thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you for having me. All right, give me just lay it on me. What the hell happened, man? <laughs> well, for, first, start start by telling people your your relationship, what your position was, things like that, if you would. Sure. So at EcoHealth Alliance, I was hired as the a senior scientist of the data and technology department. It was a little bit separate from the rest of the organization as how it was structured. I was primarily doing quantitative epidemiology, modeling and forecasting biosurveillance uh, work and developing technologies for the Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. I was very successful at, at that. I, I brought in about $6 million within a year. Not many scientists bring in that kind of money over their entire uh, academic career, professional career. Uh, could, you, could, you clarify, could you clarify real quick how you're bringing in money by doing that? Sure. So we would write proposals or respond to, to proposals from the federal government. So they have they put out requests for applications, uh, requests for proposals. And then you submit a proposal uh, for either contracts or grants. Then you're competing against other organizations or groups. And then they competitively award that money. Got it. Got it. So it's... Uh, it's a, it's a big deal to, to get one of these contracts or grants, especially at a young age. I, I think I was only 32 at the time, 33. Hmm. So I was having massive success for being a fairly young and newly minted doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, prior to that, I had worked at Sandia National Laboratories as a senior member of the technical staff. I held a top secret security clearance from the Department of Energy. And I was doing much of this advanced modeling and simulation work on one of the largest, world's largest supercomputers trying to predict and, I guess, um, optimize pandemic response is one of the things I worked on, uh, trying to predict where infectious diseases would come from, how we would respond to national threats to agriculture, bioterrorism, biowarfare, that kind of thing, uh, complex systems analysis. And eventually, you know, there's, a, there's also a classified aspect of things that I was involved with there that I can't talk about, but that gives me insight to the bigger picture of, of what's really going on. Yeah. So I would imagine, my goodness, that's what a, and this is your, your first job after getting your doctorate? Yeah. So it, I had a really interesting career path. So I started off um, quite proud. 
uh, I'm, I'm a very atypical uh, PhD and uh, I can flip it, flip on my old military self anytime. So I uh, actually first served as an army infantryman coming out of high school and um, served in Operation Enduring Freedom, Operation Iraqi Freedom uh, in Iraq during the height of the war, actually. And at some point, I thought I was going to be a career officer and had a change of heart. Um, I got got uh, hurt in Iraq and, you know, I just I wasn't having anymore. I didn't want to go fight in what I thought what I came to believe were pointless wars. So went to school, uh, got degrees in psychology, master's degree is engineering, security technology and geographic information systems. So I was actually uh, forecasting and predicting acts of extremism or violence using FBI data. <laughs> and I was wildly successful at that. I had landed uh, job offers from a number of large corporations to go work in security technology or security itself after I completed my master's degree. And my advisors told me to go meet with some of the people that I had electives with, the professors, because they had a, an offer for me to, to go get a PhD. And I said, a PhD in what? Well, they said public health, uh, either epidemiology or environmental health, specializing in infectious diseases. I'm like, public health? I'm like, oh my God, you know, I've, I've done some of the prerequisites for this, but, you know, just because you, every time you switch into a different discipline, you have to take all the prerequisite material to get into it and meet the minimum qualifications. Right. Well, so I go meet with um, two of the professors that I had electives with. Um, one works in the College of Veterinary Medicine. He's like, this is a pretty sweet deal. You're going to get paid, you're going to get a full scholarship. Plus, I was getting my VA benefits. Mm -hmm. Went and met with his research center director, uh, Sean Kennedy, and he was running uh, what's uh, known as a Department of Homeland Security Center of Excellence. And these are basically were soft, hardish money. This is the lingo, but they're receiving federal funds to, to solve national security problems in academia with a direct connection to the Department of Homeland Security and other three letter agencies. So I met with him. He's like, you know, we have this sort of nasty problem we need you to work on. We're going to give you data to analyze. We think you're one of the few people that could do this. You formerly had a security clearance while you're in the military. Um, you know, there's not too many people that we can put right in this position and get to work. So I was actually working as a paid research fellow while getting my PhD simultaneously. Um, did everything, all different kinds of research from epidemiology to uh, food contamination investigation. Uh, did, did some training with the FBI during that period and also... Uh, the Minnesota National Guard, uh, they're called civil support teams for bioterror, biochemical attack, and stuff like that. And crushed my research and uh, knocked out the PhD in two and a half years, had all my work published before I finished the program, which is usually the, the gold standard for whether or not a PhD should be allowed to graduate. And through that process, um, I started spending maybe a week to two weeks on average out in Washington, D.C., while I'm doing all these things, being introduced to various leaders in national security from three-letter agencies, different bureaucrats, technocrats, and then other academics who work in national security intelligence space. Um, so since my work was, uh, was also basic research in an applied problem, I presented this work to, to, the, to the Department of Homeland Security and their stakeholders. And... I mean, I think everyone was sort of floored by what I had accomplished. And when I finished my program, my, my mentors and my advisors were like, you can work anywhere in the government that you want to. You know, we, we name an agency. So someone was trying to, to get me to go to the State Department. Um, you know, people were like DHS. And I, I knew sort of how, how much of a mess DHS was and I didn't want to work there. 
So I elected to go to Sandia National Laboratories because I, I had met a few scientists that work there that were is that, excellent. Is it S-A-N-D-I-A? Is that Sandia? Sandia, yes, like the, okay. the watermelon. Okay, yeah. Uh, so this is where, this is primarily the nuclear weapons laboratory for the United States government. It's located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, it's a company town for the most part. Everyone's uh, either with the Department of Defense in some way, the military, or this laboratory typically. I mean, it's okay. a big, big part of the state economy. And, and there's what, what year was this? Uh, 2012, I believe. Okay. 2012. So 10, a decade ago. Gotcha. Yeah. And so I start working there. And, you know, the one thing about my own work is that I was increasingly being brought into classified work and you are allowed to independently work on ideas or, or topics that you find are interesting or of national security importance. And that work I was doing, it was public health related and a lot of it was starting to, to come under the question of whether or not it should be classified. Hmm. And I felt because it was public health, a lot of it was more on the public health side of similar things you could do in academia, but they're trying to classify it. I was getting, you know, irritated and I saw the writing on the wall that, and I saw this happen to other scientists that worked there. If you kept working there, you'd be stuck working in the federal government system of national laboratories and you can never escape. Mm -hmm. You can't tell anyone what you're up to. And as your, your career progresses, you're more incentivized to stay in the system than get out of it. Right. So that's when I decided to eject. That's when I applied for the position at Health Alliance. I was flown out there. I interviewed. Like I said, I was successful with my first year. And then when I get promoted to vice president, that's when I start to see under the hood of what's going on really at the organization because I'm now included in all the, the executive meetings of the operations of different projects and programs at the company. And then I'm able to start asking questions, poking around. And then I also asked to be assigned to other, other projects. And, and before that, in any kind of academic center or university type setting, it's common for all the scientists to collaborate with each other on projects that they're not even directly involved with sometimes. Mm -hmm. So for example, I was asked to review the gain of function of proposal that Dr. Anthony Fauci has lied about repeatedly. And I mean, there's so many different f fact points you could um, illustrate to, sh to demonstrate that he is lying about this. And it's ridiculous. I actually released all of my documents on Twitter from EcoHealth Alliance. So if you're Audience wants to go out to AG or to Twitter and look at AGHUFF on, on Twitter. That's my handle. Yeah. I post the documents and I'll repost them again after this airs. So you can go take a look at them. But awesome. In my book, too. So the, the, the truth about Wuhan, there's this page in this grant proposal that my boss, Dr. Dasik, submits called the Specific Aims. And this is a standard required page in NIH grant applications or R01 or U01 grant applications. So when you look at this, it, it doesn't say explicitly say gain of function, but the problem is it is written at a level where someone with only a PhD in one of these related fields would be able to interpret this. Yeah. So all the other scientists that look like this, that they've been independent say, well, yeah, this is, this is gain of function work. Well, well, let me just say, I'm not a scientist. I saw, uh, I think it was, um, I don't know if it was Project Veritas or someone leaked some one of these proposals which i read through and i was like that sure sounds like gain of function to me i don't know oh absolutely and and so i'm glad that you know you picked up on that but then there is a, a large se segment of society and probably paid controlled opposition that disagree with this and they're vocal and they convince people right 
you know, and, and a big part of this is the of how, how it's made this far is that the U.S. government and the Chinese government colluded basically for a cover up operation and psychological operation with probably the other five eyes nations to, to execute it. And some of this is trickling to the surface uh, in the Twitter files, which are being released. And I, I strongly suspect, based on how I know, the Department of Homeland Security works with companies, these uh, government uh, government private partnerships. Mm-hmm. And also the other three-letter agencies that there's probably a lot more to that story of what's going on and what's being censored. I hope that they actually really dump these Fauci files. I was contacted by one of the journalists who were working on this, and they, you know, they're looking for evidence that my that I was censored directly by Twitter related to what I've been saying. Mm. And I think I provided them with some substantial evidence to prove that. We'll see if they report on it. That's another story. Can, but, I, can I ask which of the five journalists reached out? Uh, Schellenberger. Nice. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's, he's a good guy. And uh, I introduced him to a couple other people that, that are sort of fighting the fight with us. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a crazy story. But, I mean, when you look back at how this occurred, when it occurred, and why it occurred, it, it's not so crazy that, that the government goes into a cover-up operation. I think it's more crazy how, how much they, they doubled down on it in the face of all of other evidence. Yeah. I think that's, that, that's what gives me chills down my spine that if they're willing to continue with the cover up, given what we already know, you know, in terms of evidence as to what transpired, well, then there must be something really fucking sinister at the end of this rainbow. I mean, that's, that's my read of it because if it's not, you know, say if it was the CCP that's responsible for this, well, then why are they covering it up and why are they willing to sacrifice our entire public health establishment, our entire government's reputation to cover up on their behalf, it tells me, just as a layman, well, they're probably covering up for themselves. Oh, absolutely. I think a lot of the technocrats and and bureaucrats like Fauci are definitely, you know, trying to cover their ass. And, you know, you look at my old boss, Dr. Dasik, he's trying to cover his butt. Um, All these people, Dr. Barrick, the one thing I want to point out, all these people have uh, since lawyered up. The people that... uh, members of Drastic. So for your audience, Drastic is an online community, which I suspected was mostly a bunch of spooks uh, coming together to create a limited hangout to draw people like me into it um, so that they can sort of, you know, label these people as kooky researchers. And, and some of that has been proven to be true, actually. Yeah. I looked at this, I'm like, okay, an online group that's going to investigate and save the world. Okay, this is this is too good to be true. Right. Um, but I think there have been a few good players in there and actually maybe controlled opposition that was not so harmful. I mean, actually doing good things, but maybe just trying to steer things a little bit different direction. Sure. But they did reveal a lot of a lot of um, important information along this story. And I guess uh, Project Veritas released and, and obtained a lot of information. One one interesting character from Drastic and uh, you know a friend of mine, uh, Charles Rixey, he was a weapons of mass destruction um, expert for in the Marine Corps. Uh, he was an officer. And he somehow obtained uh, Major Murphy's um, report uh, or the grant proposal diffused. And this is maybe the thing that you saw leaked on the internet where it talks about that's binding ACE2 receptors and, and, and things like that. Yep, that's what it was. But yeah, back to the, I think the point of this was is talking about the cover up and how sinister this gets. It, it definitely looks like the Department of Defense's hands are all over this. It's a matter of. I guess their extensive involvement and, and maybe this is just a, 
terrible government oversight with a bunch of essentially idiots that don't have enough time to manage their portfolio of research. I mean, that's one of my biggest concerns of the government from working with them is oftentimes you have program managers or people who are bureaucrats in high positions and they sit, they actually, they sit in meetings every day, drinking coffee and saying smart things. And their whole objective in life is to do as little work as possible. <laughs> right. And any, any change that they recommend or any, any structural change or anything to actually improve the government actually requires substantial work and there are bureaucrats or some that, that use that want to take that kind of thing on. Um, when I worked in the department of veterans affairs, when I was a bureaucrat, I, I did that. I, you know, I took, took things on and, and did work for the government and had my heart broken many times when some superior would come back and say, we're not doing that after do a bunch of work, but that was, you know, a life lesson as a young man. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's just sort of par for the course. And maybe it's just a bunch of people that were handing money out to eco Alliance and not really putting the pieces together. You know, I, I don't believe that to, to some extent though, because of the intelligence, what appears to be the intelligence community's involvement with eco Alliance and a number of the other characters involved. Um, yeah, well, that's my question too. And and I mean, for the record, like, of course we all expect there to be corruption when it comes to the government and we expect there to be laziness and money that's just being sent to garbage projects. And when it's you know, like uh, sanitation or whatever, it's not that big of a deal. You just kind of expect there's going to be a bunch of money that's blown uh, by giving it to friends that have helped contribute to this local politician's campaign or whatever, whatever. This is a little different. We're talking about playing with what amounts to bioweapons and you're just sending out billions of dollars to people or, you know, not in this case, but probably tens of millions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, why would it be? I mean, that seems as if that would reach the threshold of okay, okay, we're going to take this seriously. Like, do you think that Fauci is a a diligent actor, or I mean, to, my read of him is that he's like he's just a a lifetime bureaucrat that has climbed the ladder by being uh, essentially a yes man and doing whoever. I don't think that he's like ultimately the the decision maker. That's my personal read of it. But if you disagree, I would love to hear your assessment of him. I think he, so the simple way to look at the government is you just look at their job and their title and and where they sit. So uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci controlled the largest budget is my understanding. And I've tried to verify that claim, but it seems to be accurate within NIH and the sub, but at a sub agency, uh, NIAID. So the National Institute for Allergens and Infectious Diseases, that's my section of NIH. Gotcha. And he, he was able to do many things over the years. He had very chummy relationships with the pharmaceutical industry. And this is uh, where Robert F. Kennedy's book, uh, The Real Anthony Fauci, really comes into play to, to get a lot of the facts around this. Big time. And, and NIAID really takes control of the publication machine in academia, meaning a lot of the money and support for the publishers of academic research are sort of de facto controlled by the government. If you look at the, how the money flows and how these journals operate and how the fees go, you know, if the government's giving scientists money to do research at a university and then the, the scientists might have to pay to publish or there might be money, this is all about money. And right. so what Anthony Fauci is able to do is he's able to structure and change the future direction of research based on what he sets as priorities and also by controlling what can be published. Right. So think about that for a second. So that basically he has the whole funding cycle of academic researchers in infectious diseases, allergens, and pulmonary disorders jumping through his hoops. 
The other thing that happens that, that Dr. Anthony Fauci does is that there's a new government agency called um, ARPA-H, so Advanced Research Project, Projects Agency for Health. And I think really what this is, it was a big so capture. ARPA for Health, basically. Yeah, basically. And so I think this, this was a large pulling of budget away from the Department of Defense or restructuring under NIH, which is really strange because a lot of this is defense has a lot of defense implications. So now it seems like there's a lot of this dual use research happening um, at NIA. The, the replacement that they announced for NIA to replace Dr. Fauci is just as bad as Anthony Fauci. So there's going to be no change change there, uh, which is sad. But yeah, now in terms that's a of problem. This, yeah, I mean, well, DC is, is it seems to be getting progressively worse. And yeah. I mean, this is another reason why I got away from working in the government is because I, I got sick of trying to fight against these people all the time. You know, you know how heartbreaking it is to walk inside, you know, you pour three, four months into some really advanced technical research, classified stuff. And then this has potential national security and significant importance to the country. You go pre uh, pre uh, present this work and make your argument, make your case with maybe your managers or some other experts in Washington, DC in a classified briefing. And they, you know, say, well, thank you for sharing it, it. And you can only sit through the, the didn't take, take many of those for me to, to say like, okay, I see the writing on the wall. Cause that, that was already happening to me in non-classified settings as a PhD student. And I'm like, well, this is ridiculous. What am I doing here? And right. This is the reality of, of what's happening in the government. But now back to your, your earlier question of, you know, who's pulling the strings here in terms of this operation with the Wuhan Institute of Virology, I don't think it's Dr. Anthony Fauci. I think he was, one of the the conduits for money and right. i think he was all too happy to control certain aspects of the project i think he was fully aware of what was going on you know to me it looks like based on the interest of where this research was heading who, who was directing it it was one one part intelligence one part defense and they're sort of glued at the hip if you especially when you're talking about the defense intelligence agency i mean that's basically dod's version of the cia so I think that's that's clear as day. I mean, interesting thing for your audience to hear is my old boss, Dr. Peter Daszak, approached me in late 2015 and asked me whether or not I should work with the CIA. And I discussed this in my book. And I, I was shocked to hear this. It was as we were leaving work and we were on good terms at that time. And, you know, I said, Peter, it never hurts to talk to him. There could be money in it. And, <laughs> and that's true. Like, because I had dealt with these people before. Sure, sure. And a number of times in my life. And, if you're a good American, you're doing American things, you're not lying and you're not being deceitful, they they do well by you. Right. You know? and, and if they ask you to do illegal, questionable things, you can say no. You don't have to say yes. And I think that's where a lot of these these movies that talk about these relationships with the CIS with assets, if they start asking you to do illegal things or they're trying to, to manipulate you because you did something illegal, maybe you should just do the time for the illegal thing instead of going down the whatever rabbit hole they're trying to send you send you down. Sure, sure. Can, it, can but, I ask you can I ask you briefly about Dezek, was he uh I mean, is he a is he a bright guy? Is it like what's what's what was your read of him? Um well so my uh my father was born in the UK, southern uh Europe, uh southern uh England, I should say. Uh and it helped me frame to understand Peter because he's from originally he's originally from the Manchester area. Mm -hmm. And so my, my father was a World War II baby. Father was an American soldier fighting in World War II. And then they, he moved back to the United States and back and forth for different periods of his life. So I 
you know, I had a good sense of having family over there, what, what that's like. And so I get the sense that uh, Dr. Dasik maybe had a chip on his shoulder his whole life. Um, he was very, I wouldn't say that he's articulate. And the reason why I brought that up is him being British is that I think a lot of Americans take a British accent for being articulate. Right, right. In terms of, um, in terms of how I think other people from England would look at him, was that I don't think he comes off that way. <laughs> right, right. And that's we, why family history comes comes into play here. I think he would be perceived as being, you know, middle middle class or middle lower class. Okay. But that, that that's, I'm not trying to judge a person because you know my parents were, were poor because they pissed all their money away, and I sort of grew up poor. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I I was just curious because you know this guy is. He's probably the most well-known name in the conspiracy theorist circles as to like kind of the uh, the inception point. Uh, I mean, because of EcoHealth Alliance's relationship to that research that was occurring in Wuhan, I guess we should we should get there at some point. Um, what what is your knowledge of that research? Was it happening while you were at EcoHealth, and and were you actually privy to it at the time? Oh yeah, well absolutely, and I'll come back. We should come back to the desk thing because I didn't hit all the, the key points. So one, okay, he's an excellent writer. Um, so so Peter and I actually really bonded when I first started over his writing ability. So he he has excellent prose, but he also has a superb rhetorical strategy. And you actually see this in the Lancet Commission report. You see this in the emails of how he he, he gets people involved and he understands the politics of, of the science very well. Um, or the, the parties involved. Um, and then I come to learn that he is only doing all these things for self-interest and power accumulation. So I yeah. put him into the, the psychopath category. And, and in all fairness, and I like to tell people this, so um, the people that test highest in the world for psych psychopathy are scientists, CEOs, lawyers, and cops, and military people. <laughs> And so I checked two of those boxes. I know. You're like all of them, man. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, I've worked in all those kind of those fields, so, you know, but the question is whether or not you use it, use those skills for right. better than yourself or others. Of I mean, course. I think that's the defining difference between, you know, the good and bad ones. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Dasik only ever used it to empower and enrich himself. He used to, uh, pay or compensate employees way under what they were worth. Um, he used to yell at one of his employees across the office all the time. I mean, totally unprofessional until he had to put on the show or the display. Yeah. And, and there's one thing like in, in my personal life, um, sometimes my old army self comes out and I, you know, I curse quite a bit or swear, sure. but it wasn't, it wasn't that type of um, unprofessional behavior. I mean, it was, it seemed really, seemed real and raw and, aggressive kind of abusive it sounds like yeah and ugly and just and when I, you see all this you're like how can this guy be these different things but then at the end of it, it all makes sense but this gain of function on your your last question the gain of function work i mean there's no question that's gain of function work we, we discussed the gain of function work when i worked at equal health alliance i mean for for a bunch of people who work in emerging infectious diseases although we're all from different disciplines okay because there's there's like six or seven different disciplines that get into this type of work how would we not discuss the project being funded <laughs> going on and the research going on through our own, or, own organization and not have everyone be aware of it because it was one of the larger grants at that time one sure. of the projects, and important work leveraging um, even a bigger contractor project that we had 
so there was no question to whether or not this was gain of function work going out. And and, the, and one of the executive meetings we had, I came out and I spoke out that I said we should be doing this work because I'm against gain of function. But this was a to totally normal debate that was going on since 2005. And when I learned what gain of function was as a PhD student in 2011, I decided that I was against it because it, to me, it didn't make sense. So there's, there's no reason to evolve an infectious agent 100,000, 150, 200,000 years into the future by combining different infectious agents like HIV inserts have been put into SARS-CoV-2. That's a fact. Or these, I mean, and you think about this with a coronavirus, but basically putting infectious disease or agents in contact with each other or different species in contact with each other that would never come into contact with each other and then have a successful mutation. I mean, it's just, it, yeah. it's, it's beyond, it defies logical reason. And that's why I've been against it. Yeah. And well, I, I think I think that there would be one argument in its defense would be like, OK, there's enemy nations that might create this. But like if they were to, what are the odds that you're going to guess what they're going to create so that you have a vaccine ready for when it rolls out? Like it's just so unrealistic. So from my side of the fence, it sounds as if the only reason to do this would be if you're going to use it as a weapon for yourself or for your own nation against an enemy nation. But if you do that and it's an infectious disease, well, it's going to come back. And, and get your own people. So I just, I can't see any rationale for, for this research, as you have already stated. I don't well, know. Well, the, the practical reality of what's going on here is that this is being used to drive profits and revenue for the biomedical industrial complex, which is a new part of the, the, the deep state, if we want to look at it that way. Sure. Um, an, another way to, to restrict freedom, another way to, to siphon the tax dollars in our pocket, to align defense contractors and academics that have no business doing this kind of work to begin with. And this is the point that I make. This kind of work is going on at different universities all over the country. Um, I, I've, I've been appalled by the biosafety and biosecurity practices that I've seen in hospitals, in veterinary hospitals and clinics, and university laboratories. And you expect these people to be able to contain and control and predict accurately the nasty crap that they're creating, I don't, I don't give them that. That it's impossible. And these laboratories have have accidents all the time. Dr. Ralph Barrick's laboratory in North Carolina has had several laboratory escapes just from his, and, and those are the ones that you find out about, because all of these people are inclined, if there is a laboratory safety accident, not to report, not to disclose, and and to yeah, because then they then they lose that that contract. Well, not just that. I mean, the university can come down on you. So you have OSHA. Um, so you have OSHA either, sometimes they have OSHA, university employees that enforce OSHA policies or by, by policy or law, they're supposed to have a biological safety officer. Sure. And they're also supposed to have an institutional biosafety committee. And I've served as, um, I served on an institutional bio committee myself at a, at a university after I left Equal Alliance. And this is all, it's not super serious stuff, but I can say it, it's pretty lax in, in the university academic environment and right. all the other professors trust that everyone's doing the right thing and but all it takes is one nefarious person to screw it all up right or one idiot to screw it all up yeah and, and that's what we're seeing here at the, the with this this laboratory leak that happens in august 2019 of uh 2019 in wuhan it, i believe, firmly believe is someone some people want to say this was an, an intentional attack or they intentionally reset but back released it but back to your point you wouldn't do this unless you have the countermeasure especially on your own land. 
Right. And to false flag, it seems like it would create World War Three. You know, so like someone said, like, oh, the CIA went over there and released it. And I'm like, well, you know, that that would be very risky to do that. And we don't have the countermeasure ourselves. Eventually it's gonna come back at you. So I don't see any of the evidence for that. And then the well, if you look at the Chinese I, I tend to agree with you, except for the fact that we look like we're headed towards World War Three. And uh and you know. Putin has said that there was uh, bio bio labs. I mean, Victoria Nuland admitted on a, on the, the congressional house floor saying that there was in fact bio labs. She wouldn't go as far as to say bio weapons labs uh, in Ukraine. Uh, do you have any information to confirm or deny that? I don't know if you're able to talk about. Yeah, that. absolutely. So I actually worked on this. So th those Ukrainian labs were part of a program called the Cooperative Biological Engagement Program from the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. I had worked with the program in other capacities, I'll just say that. And so when I worked at Equal Alliance, I helped write a bunch of the proposals for this, uh, that Equal Alliance was competing with one of the other companies, but they were our frenemy, Metabiota. So this is a company that Hunter Biden, yes. <laughs> Hunter Biden's son, uh, son's investment firm, Rosemont Seneca, invested into. Yep. And the Metabiota apparently had the, the contractor prime award on these Ukrainian labs. and this. Well, I worked at Equal Alliance. I was getting close to the before my departure, but I was helping Dr. Koresh submit several competing proposals with Beltway Bandits to get these CBEP uh, contracts because they're big money. And the idea there, though, behind the contract is it's nothing nefarious. They, the, the Department of Defense has a vested interest in enhancing biosecurity and biosafety in foreign laboratories and becoming sort of allies with American scientists. So the idea is by forming relationships with people like me, they're gonna come to us for help or money instead of somewhere else that we don't, someone we don't like, like China or Russia. Yeah, no, that so makes sense. A, yeah, so this is like a risk, bi a biological warfare risk game. And this was um, envisioned after the fall of the Soviet Union that led to the creation of these programs and I've participated in them, in them and I think they're a good idea for the most part. Mm -hmm. Now, where this gets interesting um, is that, you know, I was contacted by, by a, a reporter who I believe to be a, a Russian asset, maybe more than one. And they're trying to say, well, they're working, you know, this is a bioweapons lab and they have all these nefarious things going on. I haven't seen the proof of it. So I actually read the documents that were, that were pointed to as being proof. And they were conducting surveillance on tick-borne diseases, which is happening all over the United States and is a very innocuous thing and to go out and collect samples and just see what's circulating around. I mean, that's, that's good public health work right there. Mm -hmm. And so if there was anything nefarious going on at these laboratories, I haven't seen it. It doesn't mean it's not possible. Of course. And I actually agreed to an interview. I think I did. Well, last week with, with, or maybe it was early this week, the days are, all the interviews are bleeding together, sure. but with Russian state sponsored media, knowing what I was walking into. Right. And they were trying to, to paint this as, you know, all oh, these terrible Ukrainian bio labs. And I'm like, well, I, you know, I said exactly what I just told you. I'm like, I haven't seen the evidence. And I'm happy to look at those documents. And the journalist who was running this, you know, state media, this, you know, this like equivalent of like, you know, CBS or Fox News or something, um, big studio. And, you know, we'll send you the documents. Well, I, I haven't seen those documents yet. Uh, well, that's too bad because I, I would love to. I would love to get your expertise to actually evaluate. It. And you know, I, I'm just bringing it up because I've heard it. I mean, I, I had Laura Logan on my show, who used to be a CBS reporter. She she you know presented it to me. I think it was like February or March of this year. Um, and it's it is an, it's an interesting case because 
like whether or not it's true because of what happened in Wuhan and because of the American government's relationship to that research, you could understand why the Russians might be like, hey, there's all these labs that have some sort of relationship with the American government and they're right on our border. This is a this is a danger to us. Do you think that that's a, a justifiable concern or would they probably know whether or not there's bad things happening in those labs? Well, they, they might have other intelligence, but I think if they did, they'd be inclined to release it and make it public. That's based true. On yeah. the, nature. The, the other thing here is, though, back to your point, I don't believe that we should be supporting Ukraine in, in any way. I think this, this actually the, the conflict in Ukraine kicked off the day after there was a major finding about the origin of COVID. So one of the things I talk about in my book is that Moderna, um, what these sites here, let, let me frame this differently. One of the, a group of scientists discovered that the wild, in the wild, wild strain of coronavirus circulating around the planet, that a genetic sequence from the spike protein, the fur and cleavage site matched a 2016 patent filing from Moderna. Yeah. Never made the news because the next day the, the, the conflict in Ukraine kicked off. And if you look at right now of how they're trying to escalate the conflict in, in Ukraine with more military aid to the United States, more support, you know, who knows if it's going to be to the point where there's boots on the ground. The, the other thing that's happening right now, you have all these Twitter files coming out about the, the corruption and collusion with you know the intelligence agencies, uh, the FBI, social media, the the jabs CDS, cdc keep going <laughs> yeah you know, the, jabs, the jabs now are, are like you know everyone's agreeing starting to agree that these are gene therapy and they're killing people they're clot shots causing <laughs> pulmonary embolisms um and, and myocarditis and all these other terrible things and all this wasn't some con conspiracy theory and it's true and you know so this seems to be the common thread of how the Biden administration operates. Anytime there's some bad news coming out, they just amp up the support, the aid. You know, right. they found the, 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 you know, is this classic wag the dog scenario going on here? And the whole narrative because of my book has shifted and, and it happened a little bit slower than I thought it would. But about a week after my book came out, all of a sudden it seems like it seems like the narrative has been completely flipped. Everyone believes this is a lab leak. I keep pointing everyone to, to all the different documents and sources to prove all of this. And the Republicans hate me, probably. And even though I'm a conservative libertarian myself, uh, they don't want this to come back on the United States. They've been totally trying to frame this as this is China's fault. This is China's fault. Yep. And no, actually, this is our fault because what makes Wuhan different than Ukraine is this. There's a simple question I'd love to ask everyone. Do you think the Chinese need $600,000 to do gain-of-function research? Fuck no. No. It's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in the world. And they keep talking about it. The Republicans keep, keep making, we gave $600,000 to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Well, they're lo lo loaning us billions and trillions of dollars. Exactly. They don't need our money. So... Before I worked at EcoHealth Alliance, and years before, I learned that the Wuhan Institute of Virology was the bioweapons BSL-4 lab for their military, the Chinese Communist Party, their government. So why would the Chinese allow Westerners to come into that laboratory? Right? I mean, when I worked at San Diego National Laboratories, we would not allow a bunch of foreigners to come into... The, the most sensitive parts of our laboratory to go take a tour and see what was going on. Yeah. And, and this is where I talk in my book. This is the biggest intelligence failure in U.S. history because I believe 
the evidence strongly suggests that we swapped advanced, advanced biotechnology with the Chinese for access to their laboratory. And that's why they let us in the laboratory. And then we got them up to speed on all of the American gain of function techniques. Oh my God. Why the and, fuck would we do that? So we could collect intelligence on their laboratory. Because otherwise you wouldn't have access to Christ. it. But but you're giving our quote unquote our number one enemy if you're a you know hardcore GOP or um, you know, the tools to be able to create bioweapons at the highest level. Why that just seems like a, a weird trade-off to make. Well, let's ask the question another way. So do you believe that the U.S. government, high-level high people in the intelligence community were not aware that we were sending this biotechnology to the Wuhan Institute of Virology? I think some of them probably weren't aware, but I think that at the highest level, they had to have been aware. I don't, yeah, I, I don't buy that for a second because I, I know how this works. They're, they're, they definitely understand what the Wuhan Institute of Virology is. Of course. They definitely understood the technology that they were sending over there because there's, what, this is one of the most heavily watched areas of by the intelligence communities leaks of american technology to foreign state actors right i mean they're terribly concerned about it i mean there is no faster way to have the fbi or cia come knock at your door than all of a sudden your your advanced technology ends up in the hands of some terrorist or foreign actor yeah, you would be charged with you know treason and state secrets and or or they want to know what what that happened and how you know maybe it was stolen from you or something. But they, there'd be an investigation. And you'd be a part of it. Of course. So there's no way that this all goes down without the people in the defense and intel world not knowing that it's, that it's happening. Yes. Okay. Well, that, no, I, I I agree with you on that. I just meant like there could be lower level people because I'm sure because this is such a secretive thing. I would imagine not everyone is aware, um, but. I mean, basically what you're saying, if I'm reading you right, it would probably go, it would go all the way up to congressional, maybe even presidential, as far as like being in the know as to what was occurring there. Absolutely. I mean, obviously the, the probably the office of the director of national intelligence. Exactly. You know, so the ODNI would, would know, uh, CIA director level. I mean, this would, this would be a plan that was hatched out by people who are pretty high up. Of course. And if you look at when, when this happens, so this NIH grant with the Wuhan Institute of Virology gets approved in 2012, 2013-ish. There might have been some contract negotiation, which takes place. And the funny thing is, I learned after the fact that this contract or grant had already been approved before my boss asked me to review the proposal. So I don't know if they were trying to see if it passed the sniff test, because there was the domestic ban on gain of function with exceptions to mm -hmm. it in, in place when, when this was happening. Right. And, and what happens, I think, in 2016, the NIH, some of the, the program officers and manager, manager, managers there look at what's happening on this, this grant project, and they actually write to Equal Health Alliance and say, like, hey, is this gain-of-function work covered? This is all subject to the ban, isn't it? And they allow Dr. Dasik to write his own rules as to how this is not gain-of-function. And and did, did Fauci... Um green light that like i i don't i mean what is dazek's role in the u.s government to be able to write his own rules well this is the insanity of what really happens between government agencies and contractors okay so the the government agencies and the program officers and managers many of them do not want extra work remember what i said about bureaucrats right but oftentimes the easiest solution is when you have a problem you bring the problem to the contractor and you say contractor solve this problem deliver me back a solution. Now you didn't have to do any work if you're the bureaucrat. 
And then all you have to do is say, suggest edits or changes or modifications, kit management's approval, and you're done. And th this kind of thing happens all the time. I mean, this is the easiest way to keep your program managers, officers, and the money flowing as a contractor. Sure. You do the work, you do the work for the employee, for the government officials. Right. They don't want to have to be doing extra work. And if you try to give them extra work, it's, you know, you're not going to be a contractor for very long. Your <laughs> contractor performance evaluations will go down. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is how it works. Right. Man, what a crazy story. And then it, I've seen, you know, pretty hard evidence that the the cover up that went down in terms of, you know, the Dazek gets put in charge of investigating for the UN, the fucking... Oh. The leak. It's unbelievable. I, I went through the roof. I mean, so I, I strongly su suspected that this was a lab leak. I mean, almost from day one when this was the mainstream news. And when I see DASIC, you know, so I know the relationship with the Wuhan Institute of Virology with Equal Alliance and DASIC is put in charge of it. I, I didn't know who to trust anymore because at that time, you know, Trump was the president. And I'm like, wait. The Republican administration that's been typically against these types of things is putting DASIC in charge, and they're they're agreeing to this, and they're not putting a stop to it. I mean, it, so I was really in a state of confusion for most of oh twenty twenty, getting into twenty twenty one about what yeah. was going on with the Trump administration based on the pandemic response, how it was being carried out. I mean, like I'm like this is just the most. I didn't know who to trust. You know, the one thing is when you think like you're a, liber you're a libertarian, you know, you can align with the conservatives and Republicans on a lot of issues and say, well, um, you know, I should be able to go, go trust and talk to these people. But then I found myself in a position where I couldn't talk to these people. And then I actually got threatened by a, a congressional, a congressional investigator for the house. And I laughed at her, you know, cause she said that, uh, you know, she's it's like, you have to give us and tell us everything you know. And I just, and I told her, I'm like, I laughed at her. I said, I don't have to tell you shit. I go, you, you don't have you don't have subpoena power right now. I know how the government works. Why are you insulting my intelligence? You know, because all these people in Washington, D.C., unless they, you, they think they're in there, you're not having tea, tea with them and coffee right. every day. Like, you don't know how the government works. And you don't have to pull the strings. And the, the funny thing is, I actually had a, this my crazy story, I had an undercover FBI agent show up at my house um, when all this harassment's happening to me and he's secretly recording me and I know it and I go, do you want to shake the, the hands of the guy who single-handedly single beat the U.S. government? <laughs> and he looked at me and his eyes like about ready to pop out of his head. And he shook his hand and you're like, you'll remember that someday. <laughs> I love it, man. I love it. You got fucking balls on you. Um, I'm not so scared of these people and not, not the slightest bit. I mean, the thing is, you come out, so as an infantryman, and, you know, the reason I go back to that, you're taught to not fear anything, including death, you know, because that, that comes, that comes with the territory doing the job. And then when you have to go out and experience it and do the dirty work yourself, I mean, there's really nothing left in life to be afraid of. You know, the sure. fear escapes you. I mean, you become panicked and terrified, but you keep it bottled in and you know how to deal with it. Right. And then you realize when, you know, when I realized I was dealing with government bureaucrats and FBI agents, easy. <laughs> been many circles around in my whole life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love it, man. We need we need someone with your background, your knowledge, and your courage to actually address these issues. Um, do you have any? Uh, well, you've already said that the. Uh, well, first off, how much more time do you have? Because I feel like we could do this for fucking three sure, hours. I, I don't know, 15, 15 okay. minutes, probably twenty. Okay, great. Um, we've already discussed the fact that uh, you know HIV was the it was put into COVID. I guess um, uh, why. If that was if that's true, which I believe it to be true, 
Why why would they have done that? How how could they possibly think that they could cover this up? How did Moderna have the patent information in 2015 or whatever year it was? Um, were they privy to the work that was being done in the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Were they working with EcoHealth? How did the how does this all connect? I don't understand it. Yeah, so those are good questions. So the HIV inserts, the reason why those probably were, were added, and it's hard to know unless you're the scientist, so this is speculative, but uh, they had been working on HIV vaccines uh, mm. with mRNA technology. Okay. And so the reason why, and, I, the, and I'm not a virologist, I believe was to make it so that they could actually develop a countermeasure, like a vaccine. Mm -hmm. um, because there's a some property of that, that splice that they put into it, um, which, uh, yeah, I'll stop there because I'll, I'll end up misspeaking. It'll destroy my credibility, but I'm pretty sure it's tied back to the vaccine. If you want more information, I have to go dig into it and look. Yeah, it's okay. The other part of your question was? Oh, uh, I was just asking basically like how did they think how did they think they could get away with that i mean it it's going it's going to be so obvious and then and then how did moderna have the patent so long ago yeah so many of these these so the the real money behind all of this was the medical countermeasures the mrna technology we had discussed this and peter said this in presentations if you go find it online he talks about you know we're going out and we're collecting infectious disease samples so we can do gain-of-function work to make medical countermeasures. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he says this in numerous different types of interviews. And the real money in this is the genetic information and the material that you collect in these biological samples. So organizations like the Wellcome Trust, for example, had data sharing agreements with EcoHealth Alliance. And we had data sharing agreements with Metabiota, that's Hunter Biden's company that he invested into. Uh, the University of California, Davis, they're the prime on the predict contract, prime contractor. Um, and other organizations we worked with, like the Smithsonian and, and several other, you know, academic institutions. So what EcoHealth Alliance tried to do is it tried to position itself as the the owner of the the genetic data or information. So EcoHealth Alliance was collecting and creating a big database of all this type of information, plus the related research on um, epidemiology on exposure some some human behavior data tied to it which isn't always very useful but anyways there was a big database being created of this and then sometimes those that genetic information was shared with uh different uh databases like genbank so genbank is a place where it's a it's an nih funded uh data store where people can put in genetic sequences okay so there's a lot of this this kind of horse trading sort of happening for genetic material happening between these different organizations. And, you know, it's sort of like the kind of thing it's like, well, you know, if you share your genetic information with us, we'll give you some funding or we'll support some research over here. We'll fund this project. So there's that kind of thing happening all the time. And the more of those relationships you have actually makes it more appealing to the government to give you money for contracts because you can show that you have a lot of partners. So Peter Daszak is always big on talking about it talking about all our partners because we had a million tiny contracts with different universities and people all over the place and it makes the organization on paper look a lot bigger and looks like it has more impact to make you more competitive when they have to go through the selection criteria uh, to, to determine whether or not you should get a contract or award mm -hmm. so like i said peter dasik was very 
bright and astute about some things, and he understood this very well. Yeah. Um, and as did I. This is where we, we really got along over this stuff. Mm-hmm. So how does this end up in Moderna's hands? I don't have a clue. Um, okay. It looks like it could have been through Ralph Barrick's laboratory. So Dr. David Martin has talked about the, the patent trail and going down it. I don't agree with everything that he said because I haven't been able to, to validate everything. That doesn't mean that he's right. I just I don't have enough knowledge or expertise to be able to do some of that patent patent investigation work. But it does look like the the center of gravity here is Dr. Ralph Barrick's lab, laboratory at the University of North Carolina. Yeah. So that that's probably how they get that information. But the as you said, wasn't the patent filed in 2015? Uh, well, there's a series of patents, and okay. there, there's, there's actually more than one that that match um, because of how they reference art in patents. So in my book, I think I state four. Um, there's clearly one, but it it depends how you inter- interpret the references and patents, which usually only patent lawyers do this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, oh, go ahead. Yeah, so in, in 2016, so how this worked was that the samples and material, genetic material being collected in China and other places in Southeast Asia and by Ecoff Alliance, that genetic material ends up in the hands of Ralph Barrick eventually. Simply. I mean, just to simplify the whole situation here, mm-hmm. that gets in Ralph Barrick's hands. And then he's doing the gain of function work back and forth with um, Xi Zheng Li in China. Okay. The bat lady. Yep. Bring her, bring her up to speed. Simultaneously, uh, Dr. Barrick's got a number of other NIH grants and projects doing this mRNA technology and other related research. So he has his fingers in all the gain of function pies. Jesus. And man. yeah. And if you look at the, they're called intellectual uh, property transfer agreements. Um, I believe there's one with the University of North Carolina, or I, I'd have to go back and look at the document, I forget. And I, have, I cited my book, I could pull it up and look real quick, but um, there's a document, there's an intellectual transfer property agreement for the genetic material to make the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, which is signed, I think it's like December 15th um, by US government officials. I think it's Anthony Fauci and someone else. What, what year? Of 2019. Okay, Jeez. So this shows, shows, shows you that the US government's lying to everyone. Yeah. Immediately. I mean, it's hardcore proof. I mean, they're already starting to put the mRNA technology into production in mid-December. And by the first week of January, it's already in, going into production. And then like and, 20, 28 days later or something like that, it's basically, it gets it gets greenlit. And then a few months later, it's mass rollout to billions of people. I mean, yep. this is this is shit that just doesn't happen, man. No, it's totally crazy. It, um, the, the, they discounted all the, the experts and find it with drugs that they identified that worked. Um, DARPA, Department of Defense, that do Pepsid AC works in, in treating uh, COVID. Um, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, uh, zinc. The funny thing is, so there's a, a, a chiropractor, um, um, or maybe he's an ODM, I think he's a chiropractor. His name is Dr. Eric Naputi. Um, from St. Louis, Missouri. He, he's being sued by the federal gov- government for $500 million because he recommended zinc and vitamin D to his patients. I mean, this is so ridiculous because this is actually proven that it does cut it the duration of yeah. colds, flu, all these other things. Well, I, I helped him do some research for his case and I found the, you know, the funniest of publications. So guess who did the research that zinc kills coronavirus? Tell me it's Fauci. 
Dr. Barrick. Yeah, Dr. Barrick. So I found that. I'm like, I can't believe I missed this. Unbelievable. Standing next to me. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, so I sent this off. I'm like, Dr. Nipudi, I'm like, you're not going to believe what I found for you. And like, what? I'm like, well, you know who, who made SARS-CoV-2, right? One of the people who was instrumental in it. It's like, you're kidding me. Sorry. My dog's whining behind me. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. We'll, we'll wrap up here soon, man. This has been incredibly enlightening, my guy. I cannot thank you enough for connecting some of these dots. As you can tell, I've been hot on the trail as a layman for a few years now. I've actually been talking about this since the summer of 2020. Um, you must have felt similarly. I mean, it, you've been living through this with intimate knowledge as as to much of what was actually occurring. Uh, watching all of this transpire with lockdowns and these completely insane uh mechanisms to try and stop this thing what has your thought been i mean you had to have been thinking to yourself like there is a. I mean i had dr malone on my show just a month ago and i i actually wanted to ask you your opinion of him because a lot of people accuse him of being a limited hangout um because he's got a lot of government relationships too but it seems like you do too it's just like part of science at this point is like you're going to have a lot of government relationships if you're a scientist uh and and he's he's describing it as a global psyop, and that's that's what it feels like. It feels like a psychological operation. Um, any any thoughts on any of that? Oh, it, it totally. I mean, so the all the actions that take place after October 2019 globally become a, a psyop. Event 201 is part of the psyop, and that's conditioning people. Those tabletop exercises. There's there's nothing nefarious about them. I used to conduct them, but the timing of this one, the accuracy. accuracy they were specific. I believe they were specifically conditioning everyone to about to what was going to happen, and they did a tabletop tabletop exercise because I think the intel community figured it out. I mean, if I can go back and retrospectively find this information, I know that the intel community has access to other information and sources of information that I don't. And I used to develop the tools that these people use, so I and I have insight to how the whole collection, the intelligence collection scheme works, actually. So you look at someone like Snowden, right, too, and what he's t told people what the government could do, what, 15 years ago now? Sure. Imagine where we are today. So this all in the context, yes, this is definitely a PSYOP. And, and you asked me what I think of Dr. Robert Malone. Um, we chat on occasion. Um, he worked on countermeasure development, mRNA, that kind of technology. I worked on signals intelligence, which is the other side of this is how do you detect and find the, these things. So that's where you know we we have a lot of commonalities. He stated in it his career. I, I walked away from it because I realized how insane all of this was and <laughs> not, not returning any value back to, to taxpayers. Mm -hmm. You know, is he a limited hangout? I mean, he could be. I could be a limited hangout. I've been accused of it. Um, sure. Dr. Malone has to. And the simple this is the simple way that you can always identify a spook. And this is this is what I've been taught. From going through spook identification training from the government, <laughs> don't listen to anything what people say. Just watch their behavior. It's the behavioral. It's a behaviorist view of psychology. Mm. So people will consider and say all these things and try to will you waste your time, distract you. Look at their actions and what they're doing, and only that. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you look at Robert's actions, I think 
so far to this point, and it's all been been good for the planet and society. You know, does yeah. he have financial interest? Well, I'm, I'm sure he's making money off mRNA technology because he probably has patents filed on it and worked on it for so many years. Right. And that's the nature of the beast. Maybe he's not happy that he's making the money off of it. I mean, that could be a possibility too. Well, yeah. You know, there's an old saying that I was taught from a, one of my instructors that was really old when I was a college student. And his advisor was Einstein. So, I mean, think about how old this guy is. I think he was like an 85-year-old instructor when I had him. But very wise, and he said, there's no way to predict the future use of a technology. And this was when I was earning my master's degree, and it's true. Um, and for Dr. Malone's case in mind, you know, we had developed some things, and I probably have some regrets that I gave the, that information or technology to the government, and I'm sure he does too. Right. Well, and, and I mean, it's like creating the nuclear weapon. It's like, yeah, you could have created nuclear power which ultimately saves the world or you can create nuclear holocaust which ends the world so i think that that's just the double-edged nature of scientific innovation and it's uh unfortunately or fortunately i think fortunately for the most part it's human nature that we're going to innovate and we're going to create new things and i and i appreciate you know that that's what humans are capable of we just have to be um you know follow the the better the better nature of ourselves once we have these incredible powerful tools and unfortunately uh i think largely because our government is so enormous we have a lot of really bad people with a lot of lot of money that's being directed towards using these tools in very nefarious ways and, and as you said i think that dr malone's um work after he realized what was occurring uh would be counter to his interest to say hey we should be stopping using these vaccines and things like that. Like, why would he do that if he's actually profiting from it? So uh, from my from my side of the fence, both you and he strike me as as honest actors. And I, I really appreciate your your willingness to to speak to my audience, to speak to the world, to, to help us in this fight, because we need the truth. I, like if we're going to keep civilization together, I strongly believe that we have to have a moment of honesty and reckoning with what has transpired. I think that if they try and cover this up a la JFK and they say, hey, we'll tell you the truth in 60 years, we're not going to have a country in 60 years. I really believe that. Well, um, so. you can almost argue that since JFK, based on the, the last revelations about you know who killed him, we've been probably living in, in some kind of psyop. And I've talked about this before that I came to the, the realization that these government psyops are not as effective anymore. And the reason why they're not effective is because people have more access to tons of information through technology and social media. Yep. So we're like a bunch of, uh, you know, uh, prairie dogs. You know, one <laughs> of us thinks something's off and right away someone's chattering on Twitter. This is weird, you know, and, and, and there's that, and this is how misinformation or disinformation uh, propagates. I mean, I don't know if you've ever walked up to a prairie dog field, but you probably weren't there to eat the prairie dog yourself, but you come over there and one pops up and starts yipping and goes back on the hole. They all pop their heads up and then you're gone. Yeah. They, they perceive you as a threat. Well, that was misinformation or disinformation that the one prairie dog gave to the rest of them, but you know, they're all still alive. So that's sort of like how I view uh, Twitter as a, as a platform. There's a lot of that happening. So you have to be careful. And I've actually requoted, retweeted things that were not accurate. And then I went back and deleted, I think I actually did it this morning, actually. So I, I've you, done the same. Yeah. You have to be careful with that. And, um, but I can see the draw of why that happens. And, the nice thing about that that type of platform, that communication, though, is that you know people can call BS and start questioning what's going on. And if it weren't for social media and the share of information, they probably no one on the planet would have been wiser. And 
you know, social media probably saved my life to, to some extent when, you know, the government might have been trying to kill me at, at one point. So by me coming out and being vocal, writing this book, doing these interviews with me, you is what became my, my source of protection. And I, and I, I realized that that's the calculus I did. I go, well, if I sit here now and they know that I know these things and just go about my life, it's really easy to disappear you. Yep. But if you come out and you start speaking to politicians, doing depositions, writing a book, doing interviews, well, information's out there. I'm not hiding anything. I let it all out there. And now it's with everybody else to decide what they want to do with it. And, you know, an important part of this story, and we were talking about with, uh, and I was on a, a round table with Dr. Malone the other night, is, you know, well, what do we do about this? And just remember, the American Revolution was only probably executed by 10 to 15% of Americans. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if your audience out there, um, stand up, be courageous, uh, be loud. It's going to take take more of us. We're probably not to that, that mark yet, but something needs to change with our government. I hopefully, you know, I'm a big supporter of the Article 5 of uh, calling a constitutional convention at this point. Mm-hmm. The three main objectives, um, reigning in federal spending, uh, term, li- term limits for Congress, and limiting federal powers, and especially in the national security state. And I think I think those three three things, I think most states would agree to. I don't see why why wouldn't the states agree to that? Man, I don't know if we can get uh, the the uh, the threshold to actually make any changes, but we certainly need some. And I hope that um, you know people are really internalizing, processing this information, understanding what's transpired, realizing that. You know, you're not a conspiracy theorist to be asking these no, questions. Not, that, yeah, you know. far, none of us are. And, and the thing is, Alex Jones told me, this was just very enlightening when I had the interview with Alex Jones. And I, you know, the, the, the whole Sandy Hook thing has always turned me off sort of about Alex Jones because like, that's just obviously not a conspiracy theory. So it made me think that he's uh, actually that Alex Jones is a limited hangout. Mm. But uh, that aside, he told me that, you know, what they did to me was the same thing that they did to Martin Luther King. And I told him about what the FBI's harassment, the state police, all this stuff. And, you know, these guys were actually trying to convince me to kill myself. And I was laughing at them, you know. And it, it sounds like this is crazy to go through. But this is the exact same stuff that, that they did to MLK and a couple other people in history. I'm like, well, I'm glad that I have the honor of being one of the most threatening Americans in history. Yeah. Well, Jesus Christ, man. That that says uh, you're probably telling more truth than anybody in history. So that's a good sign. Yeah. Taking a drop of classified information, that's the best part because the FBI would love to come kick in my door and, you know, cough me if they could. But I haven't leaked any classified information. I haven't, I know what the, the boundaries are. And uh, that's the best part of this. I've done it all by the book and I beat it by the book. I love it, man. Well, as you know, even when you play it by the book, sometimes the government doesn't. So uh, if you'd like to make a declaration that you're not suicidal, I would recommend yeah. you do it now. You know, when people say that, oh, I'm okay, I'm not suicidal. Yeah, right. but I, mean, I said that repeatedly. I mean, they're they're not going to try to suicide me if they come into my house. I'm going to kill them. Trust me. All right, let's fucking go, <laughs> Doctor Andrew Huff. Everybody, I am going to be ordering this book today, and I would imagine thousands of you will as well. The truth about Wuhan: How I uncovered the biggest lie in history, and that is not an overstatement. This is the biggest lie in history. Uh, also, follow him on Twitter at ag huff. Is there anything else you'd like to leave my audience with? No, just just I guess the the one happy note here, and try to you know bring this down from what I, from my last said. Um, it's just going to take a while to to get everyone in the government to realize that they've been part of the machine and a lie too, and we need to educate them. Nonviolence is a solution here, and um, 
you know, we've been through difficult things before. It's just, this is probably more difficult than any other thing that we've been up against. We just need to get pushing and we'll see, we'll get through this. Life will yeah. be better. Yeah. Well, from your mouth to God's ears, let's, uh, let's pray. We get some, some action here. I'm not even religious, but I'm starting to feel religious lately. Um, <laughs> thank, thank you so much for your time, man. And, uh, and for your work and for your courage and continuing to tell the truth to the world. I, I, I can't tell you how much it means to people like me who have been, uh, you know, reading the tea leaves for fucking three years and not having any clue what the truth was. And then you have a guy like you that comes out of the, out of the woodwork and you're like, Oh my God, he worked for ego health. This is fucking amazing. So yeah, the whole I, thing is I was trying to come out of the woodwork over a year ago and they just, the government, that's when the government put their foot on me. And so I was oh. censored and they're hacking all my stuff. I mean, they're almost successful. Wow. Well, I, I, I wish we had more time to dive into that, that area of the story, but I'm sure people can check out your appearance on Alex Jones to get uh, more on that. My goodness, man, you've had a crazy couple of years. But uh, we, as I said, we really appreciate it. And uh, I hope everyone will go get that book one more time. It is The Truth About Wuhan, How I Uncovered the Biggest Lie in History. Dr. Andrew Huff, thank you so much for your time, man. Yeah, thank you. Nice meeting you. Welcome to Liberty Lockdown. Please scan your barcode. Your liberty ain't gone, but yeah, it's on hold. Where did it come from and where did it go?